As you know, our, our text from 1 Thessalonians here, Paul has planted this church, um, and he's been estranged from it. He's had to leave uh, because he was, as he planted the church, he kind of made some people in the outside of the church upset. And so they came after him. They came after him in the synagogue to start, and then, um, and then that kind of blew up, and it became kind of a whole city affair. And there were mobs coming after him as he was teaching in the house next door, a guy named Jason. You can read all about that in Acts 16. But he was only able to be there a few weeks, and then after leaving, ends up uh, moving on to, uh, to uh, Athens and eventually to Corinth. And we think he writes this book back to the Thessalonians from Corinth. It's probably the first book chronologically that was written in the New Testament, about 51 or 52 AD. It's the first time that Paul puts pen to paper and the book actually made it to us. He may have written letters before, we don't know. Um, but he writes this book back to the church in Thessalonica to try to encourage them because he's left them, but guess who's still there? The mob <laughs> and the Thessalonians and the people who aren't too happy about this church being in their city. And so he's got some new instructions for them to remind them of the way that they ought to live, to remind them of how they should be witnessing to the Lord in their community, right? to remind them of what it is to actually follow Jesus and kind of to, to take them a little bit deeper. And so sometimes he'll do things where he'll kind of point things out, and as we've kind of said, it's like when my wife compliments me for washing the dishes. It's, it's a way of saying, you know, good job, and maybe you can do it again, right? <laughs> Don't stop. <laughs> there will be dishes tomorrow, and there will be dishes the day after that. And so you can continue to contribute to the well-being of this household <laughs> by standing in front of that sink for a little while. Right? And so when Paul encourages them or compliments them on something, it's, it may be because they're doing it, and it may be because they need to do it a little bit more. And he's just sort of grabbed the little glimmer of hope, and he's trying to blow that spark into a flame. And so we saw that actually last week as we talked about the way that Paul sent Timothy back to the Thessalonians to see how they were doing. And they come back, and, and what does he tell them? He says, I want you to continue to abound in love. Continue to grow in love. You already love each other, and I love you, and you love me, and God loves us all, and it's all love, but continue to allow that love to grow and grow and grow, kind of it seems like maybe insinuating that they didn't actually love each other all that well. That there were times and there were places that Timothy went and saw where it was like, no, they've actually allowed the ways of the outside world to creep in. And they're starting to pick at each other. And there's starting to be cracks in the foundations and in the walls. And they need to be reminded of what it is to love. So Paul doesn't come out harshly and slam them and say, didn't I tell you? He comes in gently. He says, I want to encourage you to abound in love more and more. One thing we struggle with when we come and we read this book, especially if we're reading ourselves as the Thessalonians, right? if we see this as Paul talking to us, which often we do and maybe we should, but one of the differences is that the Thessalonians are kind of a, an embattled or a persecuted minority. 
right? They've got people looking in, suspicious about what's going on. And most of us, for the most part, are not. I'm not saying it's, you know, the easiest or most comfortable thing in the world to be a Christian right now, uh, but we're not persecuted the way they were persecuted or the way Christians are persecuted in other parts of the world. And so sometimes as we read texts like this, one of the things we need to hear is that Paul is in some way kind of punching up, right? He's, he's rocky. <laughs> he's the underdog that you root for because he's not supposed to win. And so when we come to understand what the kind of the background and the context as he speaks to them about their sexual lives together, we need to kind of have a, a little bit of clarity about that. And sometimes as the church, we've come into places and we're kind of the dominant voice in the room. And when we speak with the same kind of force, as Paul speaks with here, as he's sort of punching up, when we speak with that same force as we're punching down, we can be saying the same words in a completely different spirit. And it's something we want to watch to abound in love more and more. You know when you love somebody, you speak the truth to them, but you're also very aware of how you do it and how they hear it. The Thessalonians um, lived in Thessalonica, a town in northern Greece, another area called Macedonia. It's kind of the same, same region. Um, and their culture, their world, was kind of the culture of the Greco-Roman world, the Roman Empire, but kind of Greek culture. So we sort of smashed those two things together, and the cultures had a lot in common. Um, they did not have a lot in common with the Jews. <laughs> the Greco-Roman culture had a totally different kind of understanding of the world, a totally different understanding of the gods, totally different understanding of what it was to live a good life. These things were very much in tension with one another. And so as Paul, who he'll tell us in other places is a, is a good and faithful Jew, comes into these Greco-Roman cities and is convinced that God has called him to teach and to preach the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, and plant communities of Gentiles, you can see a little bit of a clash. And the clash is not just about what food do we eat at Thanksgiving. The clash is not just like, how do we dress? Or how do we arrange, you know, uh, you know what time do we have church? Are we going to have church early so that we can all, you know, make it to... Uh, well, I was going to say Perkos, not Perkos anymore, Huckleberries, uh, you know, before the rush? Or uh, are we going to have church late because we like to kind of take our time or we're not, we're not a real rushed culture, right? It wasn't sort of, those are honestly kind of easy things to deal with when you've got a clash of cultures. The stuff that Paul is dealing with here is a really tough kind of thing. How we see ourselves, how we understand our own bodies and our own relationship to the world. He uses a word here that shows up regularly in the New Testament. Uh, the word shows up in verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, which is it? <laughs> is the will of God your sanctification? Your being made holy? Your being so filled with love that there's no longer room for anything else? Or is 
the will of God, what he's about to say, that you abstain from sexual immorality? Well, it really is both. What Paul's calling them to is a kind of purity that sees and enables God's love to shine into every single area of their life. There are no brackets or rooms or little pieces or things that they've held off from God, even their most intimate and private practices. And so he uses a word. We translate it sexual immorality. If you have an older translation, it might say something like fornication, which isn't very helpful because it's real churchy, right? <laughs> it just, the word is porneia. Um, it's the word that we get pornography from. Um, and it's a word that shows up a lot in the Old Testament, or in the New Testament. And really, people kind of argue about what it means, but what it means is everything that God does not approve of, <laughs> which to some extent is not the most helpful because um, it's kind of this circular kind of reasoning. Right? But what we know for sure is that Paul was speaking into the sexual culture of this Greco-Roman world in this city of Thessalonica. And the habits and the practices that were going on they did not see themselves the way we see ourselves, right? So two kind of primary habits that would have been happening in the culture. Um, the first would have been forced prostitution. It was not uncommon and it wasn't strange for women who were in a vulnerable position in their family, economically, socially, to be put into a place where they were prostituted. And, and this was, one writer says, that slavery and forced prostitution were the very foundation and bedrock of Roman society and culture. It wasn't like some kind of thing that happened off in dark corners. It was everywhere you went. And a lot of people were lost in this kind of activity. The other thing would have been same-sex, I don't know what you call it, sex acts, right? And the, the Greek and Roman folk didn't see, they didn't see or understand kind of orientation the way that we see and understand orientation. They understood a sort of sexual urge basically as an itch that you scratch, okay? You get hungry, you go eat a meal. You get thirsty, you get a cup of water. You have an urge, you go deal with that urge. It feels kind of gross to a lot of us to put it that way and to make it kind of so base, but that's how they saw it, and it's the world that Paul was ministering in, and that he was trying to help people come through. The main thing that was present in the way that they thought about sexual immorality, they wouldn't have said immorality, sexual activity, was power. Power. Okay? So anybody who's kind of higher up the ladder has the opportunity to engage in sex with somebody who's lower on the ladder. But you couldn't flip that around, right? So there was an assumption, boys are going to be boys. Men were just going to kind of wander out into the world, and they were going to do what they were going to do. And this was, there was just kind of a, ge a general cultural shrug at that. The other assumption was that you wanted to protect and preserve the honor of women, especially as they moved higher up in class, you had to protect and preserve women from any sort of sexual activity. Male wandering and female honor were the things that kind of happened there. 
And so Paul comes into this world, and you can understand how as a Pharisee, he was raised a Pharisee, and a Jew, and somebody seeking to follow Jesus, this is going to be tough. Because he doesn't just need to call his church to be socially acceptable, right? He can't just say to them, well, be a good neighbor, right? He can't just say to them, look around you and, you know, believe in Jesus and kind of be a good person. Because the world that was outside of them and, and the boundary that said good person was profoundly set against what it was to follow Jesus. It was deeply set against what it was to serve the Lord. So it wasn't just a kind of thing of social acceptability. Instead, what Paul sees and understands and is working over and over and over again in his letters, whether in this sort of area or in other areas, to get his people to see is that, and what I hope we can see this morning, is that we don't just have a body, we are a body. Okay? So we aren't like, like a little ghost inside a machine. Right? We are not a, a I don't know, a, a, a spirit or a little wisp of something that lives in our brain and pulls the levers on the body as we go through the world. We are our body. I am this body. I don't always like that. <laughs> Sometimes I wish I was different. But I am this body, right? We don't separate ourselves or find ourselves in a different place from the body that we actually have. What does that mean? It means for Paul that if we allow our bodies, our physical beings, to be corroded and corrupted by passions, he calls them, like the Gentiles do, where they just say, hey, you have this kind of, you know, you want a cookie, you eat a cookie. You have this urge, you follow that urge. If we allow ourselves to live in that way, it doesn't just break down our body, it breaks down us. It breaks down the very thing, the very person that God is seeking to save. And that's true in the case of sex or food or greed or money or vanity. All of it. When we use our bodies in a way that is counter to the gospel and counter to the good news of a God who not just creates a good creation, but seeks to renew and redeem and make whole that creation, we find ourselves further and further from the Lord. And so he tells them here, what are the things he says? To abstain. Right? He says, abstain from porneia. Control your own body in holiness and honor. And then he says, do not wrong your brother. And really the vision here, do not wrong your brother or sister. Because truthfully, the early church was a place where a lot of people gathered, including slaves, and people of low status who would have been the victims of plenty of these kinds of activities. So he's not just talking to the playboys who are wandering around. 
He's saying we have got to take one another seriously. And that means we stay away from the things that would have been common. Affairs, prostitution, same-sex acts. And these very well could have been happening in the community, in the church. And the world outside would not have seen anything strange about that. As I come and read this, uh, you know, I recognize that the language we use in our culture, I'm a relatively young, white, married, straight male, right? I kind of stand up here as one of the, you know, as one of the privileged folk. And I also stand here personally as a person who's broken in this area, who needs help and grace and forgiveness, and who continually seeks that, right? I recognize that my sanctification in this area, just like any of our sanctification, is not a momentary thing. But it's something that we come confessionally to God and trust that He can and will do something good in our lives. Part of my fear as a preacher, when I talk about these things to the church, is, and I was just talking to a, we were up in my grandpa's house, I was talking to a family member just yesterday, who kind of said, why, you know, why doesn't my pastor of the church sort of talk more about this stuff? For me, part of the thing is I want to be real careful about nurturing self-righteousness in the church, where we have a sense that we have it and others don't, right? We've got it right. If we just kind of stand in an echo chamber and say, I believe this, hey, me too, hey, me too, right? And we all just feel good about how we all believe the same thing. (laughs) I don't know that that actually grows the character of Christ in us, to love and seek out those who are hurting. It doesn't change the truth of what Christ calls us to. But I want to be real careful that we live with the spirit of humility and not self-righteousness. So what can we take away from this? Well, as a lot of you probably know, (laughs) the sexual culture of America in the 21st century, the key thing is not power necessarily, but consent. As long as two or more consenting adults, there shouldn't be anything kind of keeping them from whatever they want to consent to. I think part of what the gospel has to say to that is that there's a tendency, there's a tendency for us to forget how powerful these things can be. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 6, don't you know that if anybody unites himself to a prostitute, that he unites the whole body of Christ? There is a kind of deep, almost spiritual quality to this activity. It's a powerful reality that speaks of more than just passion or desire or an urge. Sex is a sign of the way that God creates us for one another in community, to serve and care for one another, to be careful with intimacy. And it's not just about that sort of act or those desires. It's about the way we see and listen to one another. It's about the way we care for the vulnerable and refuse to 
bring power over those who are vulnerable. It's about family and relationships and the fact that God desires to extend his reign in this world through families. I don't fully understand that, but I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful that I was a part of a family and that I am a part of a family. And if we boil it down to either physical impulse or consent, we cheapen the reality that God is seeking to build in this world. I think one of the things we need to be careful about in our culture, as I've sort of said, is even if we're not a persecuted minority, and I know that's a sort of contested reality sometimes in America, um, especially when we're dealing with LGBT folks, regardless of how you feel, the perception is that we Christians are the dominant culture. And so it's real important that we don't speak into those situations in that sort of punching down kind of way. Where we come with a heart of, I'm just going to throw the truth on you and you got to figure it out. We can maintain what is true while remaining sensitive to their pain, remaining sensitive to the marginalization that they really do experience. Right? I don't think that's a made-up thing. I love that in in the Torah, when God is speaking to his people, he has this line that he says over and over, which is, when you welcome the stranger, when you welcome the widow, when you welcome the orphan, you treat them well because you know what it's like to be slaves in Egypt. And so as the church, part of the question is, do we remember our own marginalization? Do we remember what it is to be on the outside? And did we forget as soon as we got into power? As soon as we got into the center of culture? As soon as the Bible became the most published book in all of human history? Right? Do we forget what it is to be pushed to the outside? Do we forget that pain? Do we forget that loss? We may be here in 21st century Sacramento, but we're still the people whose forebears were thrown to the lions in Rome. Right? Those are our people. That's our family. And we've got to be so careful that we don't turn around and become the persecutors. But be a people who welcome the hurting. For you know what it is to be slaves in Egypt. Paul's words here and, and elsewhere, he does, I'll just say, speak clearly against same-sex union against abandoning gender, it's there. But porneia also encompasses the scope of so much sexual sin. And sometimes we get lost in the cultural hot-button topics. While we, Christians, are slogging through the mire of our own sin. Porneia speaks as well to affairs and divorces and pornography. And even just the culture of sensuality that says, I'm going to use sexual desire to my own benefit. And so I'd ask us as the church, do we have nothing to confess before we look out to those outside of us? There's one other thing that Paul is, critical thing Paul is saying, I'm going to come to in a second. 
And I'll come to it now. <laughs> the unique, creative, almost unprecedented thing in the early church that nobody could have guessed. The thing that Paul really, made, not single-handedly, he gets it from Jesus, but it seems like he's a big part of this, almost single-handedly introduces into the world that nobody had thought about was singleness. But Paul comes onto the scene where if you're a Jew, you get married and have babies, right? If you're in the Greco-Roman world, you kind of do whatever and whatever and whatever, and then you get married and have babies. And Paul comes into this world where everybody is doing exactly the same thing with different levels of morality. And he says, you know what? You don't have to be a part of it. You can, like me, he was himself an example of this, you can step out of this world and live a righteous and holy single life. And when you do that, you're not less than a whole person. <laughs> you're a complete and full human being. He says in 1 Corinthians 7, he actually praises those who would embrace this kind of heroic lifestyle. of saying, I'm going to live singly and give myself fully to the Lord. It's incredible to see. And nobody was saying this. Nobody was building cultures around this, but this is what the early church does. The early church has groups of consecrated virgins, both male and female, who said, I'm going to take all of the energy that I would have put into family, I'm going to take all the love that I would have put into a spouse, and those are good things and nobody's knocking them. But I'm going to take those and I'm going to redirect them by God's call and by His mercy into the fullness of the church and the extension of God's kingdom. And for some reason, we, the evangelical church, the Protestant church, the church of the Nazarene, we struggle to do this. We struggle to take young people who are kind of in this situation and say, you know what, this is a good life God has called you to. And maybe one day he calls you to marriage, fine. But this life of singleness is a good life, and we want to help you live it out. This was incredibly revolutionary. That you don't actually have to, the Greco-Roman world, scratch that itch. You can live above it. You can live in a way that is so transformed by the mercy and grace of God that your soma, that your body, that the body that you are, that God not only allowed to be crucified in Christ, but also promises is raised with Christ. That that body that everybody else looks at and says, it's fallen, it's icky, it's gross, you just got to kind of do what you want to do for a little while and hope Jesus comes back. That is not how we see it. We see that God is so eager to pour his spirit into us and to give us victory in these areas of our life. No matter how deep, that brokenness, no matter how profound the hopelessness and the feelings of being trapped are for you or for those around you, there is a way out. Not because I know you and not because I have magic pixie dust to sprinkle on anything, but because I know who our God is. And I know what he's done in my life and in the lives of people around me. There's a way through. But it happens for the most part as we disengage from the lies 
that we're told and that we're raised with, sometimes that we come to accept. I think as the church, one of the things we've got to do is to reject the sexualization of our culture. It says, well, it says a lot of things. <laughs> but one of the challenges, if, if this is a struggle for you, is just going outside. Or doing any sort of the normal things. Turning on the TV. Or going on whatever, I don't know how old you are, if it's Facebook or Instagram. But it's all there. To find ways to reject the sexualization of our culture. The other thing that so many of us can do is to embrace and support a lively and active culture of singleness in our church. To think about for one another what does this person need? Are we helping single people live powerful lives of service? Are we praying with them? Are we inviting them to our tables? You might not think you have much to offer, but I promise you, especially if you're married and you're, you're sitting there eating with the same person night after night, I'm sure they're wonderful. <laughs> but you've probably got an extra chair. Right? I want to encourage you, find a way to invite folks who are in that challenging time of life into, into your life. Don't treat them like they're half people just waiting to get married, right? But see them for the fullness that they are, that God has called them to be. What goes along with that is developing just in general a culture of hospitality where we're eager to welcome each other into our lives, to listen well to one another, to be known by somebody, and also to know them in return. That is so tough, and it's so countercultural. It's so, if I could use the word revolutionary, just to care. I hadn't thought about this, but I'll mention it. Uh, there's a woman named Rosaria Butterfield. Uh, if, you, if you'd like an image of this, um, she wrote a book. She wrote a few books. Um, she was at, at one point in her life, um, real, kind of, I want to say it's like early, mid-90s. Uh, she's a lesbian and um, real active in, in that community. Uh, she became a Christian. And uh, she tells a story of her conversion and the, the pastor's Ken and Floyd Smith, who just welcomed her in and cared for her and listened to her and didn't try to change her first, right? Um, and I, you can go read her conversion story. It's a great book. It's a good story. I encourage you to do that. Um, but she wrote, she writes a book as well on hospitality. And, and it's a powerful book because in it, she tells the story of you know, the gay and lesbian community that she was a part of in the 80s and 90s was one that was deeply embattled. It was hard. AIDS was raging. People were marginalized in the culture, right, and rejected from families. People would get kicked out and become homeless immediately. And the community that she came up in was a community of hospitality and welcome and care that took hurting young people and welcomed them in and cared about them. And now she's in the church. And oftentimes, 
she just says, look, we've got a lot to learn. We've got a lot to learn about hospitality, about welcome, and about putting ourselves out there for others. You may not think you've got much to offer, but most people don't need you to buy them a car. <laughs> right? They don't need, to, need you to pay for their college education. They need somebody who's going to welcome them in in small ways with a plate of food and an open ear and a, maybe a place to crash for the night. I mean, you guys, it's small stuff. I'm preaching to myself here, by the way. <laughs> but I hope that we can become that kind of church, that kind of place, and that ultimately that the whole church can turn to this because I'm convinced of what, it's what Christ calls us to. Last thing, really, really last thing. <laughs> Structurally, in the way that this passage is set up, there's something really, really fascinating going on. I heard one pastor call it a love sandwich. And here's what I mean. <laughs> the last part of chapter 3, what is it that Paul says? He goes into, I want you to abound in love more and more. Right? Verses 9 to 12 of chapter 4, what is it that he says? Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God another. For that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And right in the middle, he talks about their pornea. He talks about their immorality. It's as though to say, look, you've taken this thing out of the context of love, and I'm asking you to put it back in. I'm asking you to put all the way that we think about these things, how we interact with the culture outside, how we interact individually, how we even think about our own selves, our own integrity, our own kind of bodies in a sexual way. Think about them in terms of love. It's love before, it's love after. And what is the love that we know in the church? It's Christ. It's Christ who sacrificed himself for us, who gave himself up for us, and who trusted that the only way through that was that Christ would be the one, or that God would be there to raise him from the dead. And so we have hope even in these places that may feel hopeless, that we will continue to abide and to expand in the love of Christ. Lord God, I pray your mercy on us. You'd help us to walk in your ways and to live in your light and to be a people not only who welcome others who are hurting, Lord, but who seek you out in the midst of it. Lord God, would you give us opportunities this week to live with that kind of hospitality, to open ourselves up to those who are hurting and needy, to listen twice and speak once. And above all, God, in those things, would you help us to see and to hear the voice of your son, Jesus. Yes, Lord, we can confess and know what is true. And in the midst of that, Lord, we can live with hearts that break for those that you love. May we be your church today in Jesus' name.